here it is. Your moment of zen. Oh, it's more than a moment. It's more like 40 minutes with the zen master of fantasy baseball, Lore Michaels of mastersball.com, talking about early season surprises, player facts and flukes, and even what music he's listening to these days, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Pitch is a high fly ball to right deep. Going back is Tarasco to the warning track. To the wall, he's under it now. And it's taken away from him by a fan. And they're going to call it a home run. I can't believe it. Richie Garcia is calling it a home run. And Tarasco is out to argue. A terrible call by Richie Garcia. It's all time. Learn to play the winner's way. Because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of April the 19th and show number 14 of the 2013 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to Lore Michaels, the Zen master of fantasy baseball, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst is columnist Jock Thompson. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at Twins third base prospect Miguel Sano. And in his Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about how we would value Jackie Robinson if fantasy baseball had existed in 1947. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, Joey Votto's on-base percentage is 526. So what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. So if you play in an OBP league, I bet you wish you had Joey Votto. That 526 on-base percentage is 50 points higher than Carlos Gonzalez and Adrian Gonzalez. Votto has 24 walks already this season, more than double the next highest total. Of course, he also has only one home run and three RBIs, so maybe not such a great contributor as all that. It's the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report, and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Nick, uh, of course, at BaseballHQ.com and other uh, advisors who've been around the game for a while, we always talk about patience. you got to be patient. But not everybody takes that advice, especially in public leagues, and they drop some pretty good players just because they're off to slow starts. So let's look at a few of these buy-low targets for one reason or another. Dan Becker's Batting Buyer's Guide at BaseballHQ.com did take a look at some of the most dropped hitters in these public leagues looking for buying opportunities. And one of the names he came up with, San Diego center fielder Cameron Mabin. Yeah, Cameron Mabin's off to a, a really an awful start. Three hits, I think, and 33 at-bats, and a batting average below 100, and and then this week landed on the DL because of a wrist infringement, which could be the reason that he's not been hitting very well to start the season. So, you know, Cameron Mabin is going to get dropped in even more leagues with the DL stint that looks like it's going to last longer than a couple of weeks. But the thing to remember about Cameron Mabin is this is a guy that, that two years ago stole 40 bases. He's only 26 years old. Uh, he's never going to hit for a high average, but he's got great speed. He's got a walk rate that's uh, usually up around 8, 9, 10%. So he's going to get on base. Uh, so if you can if you can stomach a 240 to 250 batting average, and you may get 40 stolen bases out of him, and and probably 
close to double-digit home runs. Eight or nine home runs would be about normal for him. So, you know, here's a guy that really shouldn't be dropped in, in as many leagues he's likely to be dumped in over the next couple of weeks. And, you know, speaking of home runs, I, I, we had him down for a few more than that going into this year because he was getting a little older, a little stronger, and so did others. He looked like he might be maybe more like a 1540 guy, but now I guess the question is going to be how long is he going to be on the shelf and to what extent does a wrist injury sap whatever power was building because we know that wrist injuries are really very detrimental to power hitting. Yeah, very definitely they are. So that could have that could, could, could certainly uh, derail uh, the power growth that we were thinking we might see this year out of Cameron Mabin, but uh, but but you know even so, I think here's a guy that's uh, that's that's young, uh, especially if you're in a keeper league of some sort. He's he's just getting into his prime years, so uh, certainly someone to keep an eye on, and not someone I think to be dumped uh, right away. Uh, you want him on your bench, not a guy to be playing right now, but certainly someone you want to hold in reserve for uh, what could be a, a better uh, better time later in the season. And, of course, all of the recommendations and anything we talk about is subject to various league rules. If your league allows you to pick up a guy who's on the DL and stash him straight to reserve, by all means, it's not a bad move, uh, especially, as you said, in keeper leagues. A lot of leagues won't allow you to do it, and if that's the case, well, you'll have to look somewhere else. Uh, Stephen Nickrand had his starting pitcher buyer's guide looking at expected ERA versus ERA, fastball velocity in April of last year versus this, and swinging strike rate between April of last year and this. And he was looking for pitchers who might be available at reasonable prices. And one of the names that came in near the top of his list, Arizona right-hander Trevor Cahill, a huge gap, a 5-plus ERA and an expected ERA under 3. Yeah, you know, Trevor Cahill at this point, uh, he had a good start this week, and this is the time when stats can change very quickly. So at the time Stephen wrote the column, a 5.91 ERA, currently down to a 3.5 ERA. So uh, one good start this week, and suddenly he's looking a lot better. But uh, Trevor Cahill is certainly a guy you want to keep an eye on. Here's a guy who's, uh, whose DOM rates have been improving over the last three years, uh, steadily going up. His, his command rate's going up with them. He's, he's been walking fewer guys. Uh, BPV has been going up from 53, I think, four years ago, up to 120 so far this year. A guy with very definite skills and, and, and someone who looks uh, may have looked like kind of a marginal pitcher starting the year. But uh, Trevor Cahill could have an excellent year. And so if he's being dropped in your league, someone to pick up. Yeah, that start this week against the Dodgers, seven and a third innings, only six hits, no walks, four strikeouts, no earned runs. That's pretty good. And also it's interesting to me they've been keeping his pitch count down below 100 pitches per game, but he's still getting, you know, six and two-thirds, seven innings, seven and a third. If he can maintain that, keep that pitch count down, keep that inning count up, that's exactly what you're looking for. Uh, right below Cahill on that ERA versus expected ERA list, San Francisco pitcher Ryan Vogelsong, who this year so far has looked mediocre at best, 589, 147, three starts. Yeah, no, Ryan Vogelsong is an interesting example of a guy that, you know, a couple of years ago we were sort of down on Ryan Vogelsong saying, you know, you don't want this guy, you want to get this guy off your roster because he's going to implode on you. And that's when he had a 2.71 ERA. This is not a, a, a guy with a sub-3 ERA. It's not a guy who should be a sub-3.5 ERA. Ryan Vogelsong is a 4.0 ERA pitcher. His, his, uh, his expected earned run average for the last three years really tell us that. 3.85, 4.02, this year 4.08. But also he's not a guy with a 5.89 ERA, which is what he's carrying right now. So Ryan Vogelsong is a guy with some, with some decent skills, a decent strikeout rate, excellent command. Uh, BPV has been going up for the last three seasons. Uh, not likely to reproduce what he did two years ago when he had that 2.71 ERA, but certainly a pitcher who could uh, could be very helpful 
on a uh, on a fantasy roster. Uh, and right now, uh, probably is getting dumped all over the place because of that high ERA to start the season. Yeah, he has looked poor, and uh, over the last three years, he does uh, show a record of having a pretty decent command ratio, two uh, to three uh, strikeouts for every walk. But in his previous uh, tries at the major leagues, year 2000 through 2006, with some stints in the minors in there, his uh, strikeout-to-walk ratio was not so good. Command ratio is more like 1.2 and 1.3. And at age 35, you have to be very concerned that Ryan Vogelsong might be, you know, he captured lightning in a bottle for a couple of years, but now he's on the wrong side of that aging curve. Yeah, he might he might be. But if you look at the trends, you, you see those command ratios, the control gradually getting better from 4.5 walk per nine in 2004 to 2.9 last season. Uh, strikeouts gradually getting better. Uh, so probably a guy who's got a couple of years left in him looking at those kind of trends at least. Well, two straight $15 seasons in the past, so there's something to be said for that. Uh, Nick, we've talked about the St. Louis closer situation before here on Baseball HQ Radio, uh, particularly interesting when uh, Jason Mott went on the DL and maybe on it for the rest of the year. We talked about Trevor Rosenthal. We talked about uh, some other candidates, but we hardly ever mentioned Edward Muhika, and now he seems to be the guy. He seems to be the guy because he's the only guy right now throwing the ball very well uh, and certainly has now converted his first save, So even though it wasn't uh, necessarily an easy conversion. So it uh, looks like uh, he will get some more opportunities in St. Louis. And here's a guy that, uh, if you look back at his record, uh, started posting uh, BPVs around 100 in 2009 So and been consistent at that, at that level 100-plus since then, and that's what we look for, for in a closer. Uh, a decent strikeout rates, uh, 9.3, 7.5, 6.5, so far 9.9 this season. Uh, excellent control. Uh, so a guy that looks as though he could do a, a very good job in that closer role, uh, especially with the kind of struggles they've had with with everybody in St. Louis. I think the problem that Muhika is going to have, and I remember him from a few years ago when he was pitching in Florida, uh, as they were then called, now Miami, and I actually picked him up in a league that year because I thought that he had a chance to be a closer there because they had some tumult going on in their bullpens, and uh, he never did get that many saves. And I think the problem here might be home runs. He's always been a little prone to the gopher ball. There's a real string of years in the big leagues where his home run per nine innings rate is over one and sometimes well over one. And if anything will sap a manager's confidence in a closer, it's a guy who gives up the long ball because it's almost always at a bad time when you're in the ninth inning. Yeah, that's very, very true. And so that's, that, that is the thing that could, that could eventually undermine him. Last year, he had a 33% home uh, fly ball rate. And if he keep that fly ball rate at that level, uh, mainly ground ball, 51% walk, uh, ground ball rate, 33% fly ball rate, that'll work very well for him. He may be able to keep those home runs under control. But you're right. He's always had a tendency to allow the long ball. And the key for him may be at this point, uh, keeping the, the ball out of the air. Uh, so far this season, 47% ground ball rate, 47% fly ball rate. Of course, uh, there haven't been that many of either so far for a reliever. So, uh, but, but if you can keep the, uh, the ground ball rate and fly ball rate he had a year ago, 51%, 33%, likely to do pretty well, I would think. Oh, I'd say he'd do really well. Muhika has a, a string of whip ratios right around one, a little below one in 2010, actually, at a 362 ERA because of the home runs. But he only had a 0.93 whip, which is excellent, and a 12.0 command. He basically doesn't walk anybody, and he gets enough strikeouts to drive that command ratio up to 12 strikeouts per walk. 
man, that's that's outstanding stuff. And if he keeps the ball, as you said, in the park, all of a sudden this guy's uh, an elite-level closer would be my guess. Uh, the manager in St. Louis said that they're not going to get ahead of themselves, but right now he's the guy. He's making good pitches. So, uh, Edward Muhika, if he's on your waiver wire, you could certainly do worse. Very definitely. As you mentioned, those whip ratios have been right around one for four consecutive years. That's uh, That's something worth noting. Uh, and so here's a guy right now who certainly could uh, could do something for you. All right, Nick, thanks very much for sharing again with us this week. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes the National League Central Division Outlook for BaseballHQ.com. And, of course, he's our reporter on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League. And BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here. Jock, since the last time we talked, the Toronto Blue Jays got some good news and they got some bad news. The good news was that Jose Reyes' severe ankle sprain probably is not going to need surgery, but the bad news is that he's out for three months anyway. How's Toronto going to manage this devastating blow to their offense and their defense? Well, right now they're going to use a combination of Miceris Tourist and Emilio Bonifacio. Uh, they called up rookie uh, Munanori Kawasaki, uh, but after what he did last year, I, I, I think fantasy owners can ignore him for now. He hit 192 and 104 at bats. Okay, so you got his tourist, you got Bonifacio. Uh, how do they rate as far as likelihood of getting some increased playing time as a result of this? Well, the problem that Toronto has, obviously, is that anything is a downgrade from Reyes, both offensively and defensively. Um, Miseris Tourist has been a, a, a pretty good defender over the years. His, his numbers at shortstop in 190 innings weren't that great last year. They may have some concerns there, but from everything I'm hearing and seeing, they really do not want to play Bonifacio in, that, in the middle of that infield, particularly not at shortstop. Um, I'm guessing it's going to be his Tourist who's going to get most of the time there. Well, this uh, Kawasaki uh, has been very engaging and energetic in his first few starts at shortstop, played a decent field, uh, not too good with the bat. He's very popular with fans and teammates. Uh, Everybody on TV is talking about him. But since most fantasy leagues don't have popularity as a category, I guess we have to assume that either his tourist or Bonifacio is in the infield. Is it likely that if one of them's at short, the other one's going to be at second? Well, that's the interesting thing because right now we're hearing talk out of Toronto that uh, they're going to try to give uh, Brett Lowry some reps at second base during his rehab to see if it works. Um, At that point, they would probably, if if it did work, they'd move Jose Bautista to third base, which would create a real ripple effect in the outfield. You'd see time opening up for Raj Davis. You may see uh, Anthony Ghost get some time. Uh, It's a real interesting situation in Toronto right now. You're also going to see some ripples in the stolen base pool with uh, Anthony Ghost and Rajai Davis. If either of them or both of them get some playing time, both of them can really scoot and they're going to steal a lot of bags. So a possible uh, candidate in each case to upset the pool if you happen to have one of them or can get them on, on your fab wire or your waiver wire, however your league works. Uh, lot, a lot of interesting things to happen in Toronto, I think. Uh, down in Oakland, uh, Cuban fantasy stud Uena Cespedes had a great year last year, was off to a decent start this year. Then he hurt his hand. He's on the DL. You covered this in your own uh, AL West Divisional Outlook column last Tuesday. How is Oakland going to handle what is a fairly devastating loss for them? Michael Taylor is Cespedes' roster replacement, and this was a move that was actually forced by uh, a Coco Crisp day-to-day groin injury. Uh, they needed that extra outfielder because they were getting short. But while Taylor's had his moments in the minors and may see some at-bats against left-handed pitching, 
this injury is really freeing up that playing time glut in the Oakland outfield and at the DH spot that you and I have discussed before. You've got Chris Young and Josh Reddick and Seth Smith all looking for time, and they're getting it almost every day now. Um, and the other thing that it's doing is, it, it, with with both Crisp and uh, uh, Cespedes out, it's giving time for Oakland to play their catchers. Uh, I don't know if you've you've seen the numbers, but uh, Oakland's catchers are red hot right now. You've got Derek Norris hitting about uh, 385 and slugging over 500. John Jaso's getting on base uh, at a at a 367 clip, and he's hitting 295. Uh, this is a team that has a lot of balance and a lot of matchups they can play from both sides of the plate. So, um, they're, and they're taking advantage of it right now. I wonder if they, the outfield replacement crew, if you want to call them that, while Cespedes and Crisp are out, if they do reasonably well, does that heighten the likelihood that Crisp is a trade candidate down the road? Yeah, it pro- it probably can. I I actually think Oakland's li- Oakland likes having this depth. And as as you and I have discussed on this show before, um, I I really wonder how Chris Young is going to do in Oakland over the long term. Uh, he had a good situation in Phoenix. He hits the ball in the air a lot. Uh, he's a really good defender in center field, but I think that batting average and that home rate or that home run rate are really going to suffer in Oakland. Well, they're doing something right. Uh, Oakland, as of our talk today, leads the Major League Baseball in runs scored. They're tied for the American League lead in home runs, I think second in the majors. They lead the American League and are second in the majors in on-base percentage and OPS. So uh, Cespedes, obviously a big part of that, but it's not like they're going to be uh, completely lost uh, offensively. Now that's correct, and I and I attribute that to Oakland's depth and 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 matchups. Uh, they've got a a roster that's as deep as anyone's. Um, um, I think they're a terrific club. A well-managed team can do a lot with a little, and uh, every time somebody says there's some huge problem with income disparity and so forth, you know the logical answer is to say, "Gosh, the Cubs are a big revenue team, and the Oakland's are a low revenue team," and doesn't seem to be affecting them. Uh, speaking of injuries, you also had your American League West Division Outlook column. Ryan Madsen of the Angels has had some consecutive pain-free sessions in the bullpen, two days or so apart. He could make it back even before his projected May 1st activation date. And at the same time, Dave Adler, in his Facts and Flukes coverage in uh, BaseballHQ.com, was looking at Ernesto Frieri and says his hold on the Angel closing job not so great. What's going to happen in the Angels' bullpen? Yeah, Dave and I are pretty much in sync here. Um, if you look at Madsen's profile, he, he really does fit the profile of a closer. His uh, his strikeout rate uh, is up around 10. He gets a lot of ground balls. His his walk rate is, is below three per nine innings. Um, this is a guy who's going to succeed in that role, and, and it's it's almost completely different than Frieri. Frieri gets a lot of strikeouts, and when he's right with that with that fastball, that moving fastball, he can be terrific. But Frieri also gives up a lot of fly balls and uh, and and walks a lot of a lot of hitters. He did this at, at key times last year with the Angels, and I'm pretty convinced that if uh, if Madsen keeps going without setback, it may take a little time because Frieri's been decent in the few ops he's had. But Madsen's going to inherit that job by by sometime in May or June. There was also a trade in the American League West. Uh, Aaron Harang moves from Seattle to Colorado to Seattle from Colorado, rather, uh, both legal marijuana states. I point out, and immediately took over Blake Bevan's rotation spot. How do you think this is going to play out in Seattle? Well, Harang had a pretty good first start. He struck out six. Uh, he pitched five innings. He, he gave up three runs, but. If you look at his history, uh, his last two years, he was in the NL West, and uh, and he did pretty well. 
On the other hand, if you look at his expected ERA of 496 versus his ERA of 3.61 last year, he had a lot of luck, and his control has been rising, his dominance has been falling. Um, this is a guy I think is going to be pretty risky for the American League, and particularly that AL West. Safe Coast fences aren't what they used to be, and uh, Harang actually gave up a, a, a couple of home runs in his first start, and I expect to see that happen more often than not. And what about uh, the prospects, uh, Danny Hulson, Paxton, guys like that? Yeah, it's interesting. This is kind of a waiting game because we were speculating on that when uh, the bottom of uh, of Seattle's rotation got off to such a bad start. They've already jettisoned Bevan, or Bevan. They've put him in the bullpen. Um, I think this is a waiting game on Hulson's clock, uh, service time clock. And uh, it will be interesting to see how long Aaron Harang and the other youngster who's currently in their bullpen and struggling, Brandon Maurer, hang on to these jobs. Uh, I still think Hulson is probably going to be up sometime in late June or early July. We'll have to wait and see. Well, once he passes his his arbitration date, which is usually in uh, early May, why would they wait any longer? It's not like Harang and Moore are, are killing it. Yeah, well, this year, from what I gather, because because they've changed some of that rule, it's going to be sometime in early June and maybe even in late June where that where oh. that date comes and goes. So um, that's something that uh, that we're going to have to 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 see how it plays out later on down the road. I can't see Aaron Harang jockey. In 2007, he was a $24 player, and you thought, well, here's a case of everything coming together. But it sure looks like an outlier because uh, mostly single-digit dollar values and sometimes below zero, below replacement level since. I don't know, maybe in a very deep American League league where you need somebody to get some innings for you. But other than that, I'm staying clear of Aaron Harang. And finally, the Twins prospect, Oswaldo Arcia. I have him on a roster in my American League-only league. He's had a busy last few days, Jock. He got called up to provide emergency bench depth when Josh Willingham got sick and Wilkin Ramirez was sent on paternity leave. Then Arcia got sent back down when those guys came back. Then he got called back up because Ramirez suffered a back bruise and Darren Mastriani was put on the DL with a sprained ankle. Jock, we don't count frequent flyer miles as a category any more than popularity, so is there any reason for fantasy owners to be interested in Oswaldo Arcia? Arcia's an interesting guy. You don't hear him talk talked about much as far as the, the top-tier prospects go, but um, he could be one of these next year if he goes back down to the minors. I still think he has a chance to stick. He, I think he's going to get a couple of weeks here in April. Um, the Twins' corners aren't world beaters. Chris Parmalee hasn't done that much. Now you've got um, um, Darren Mastriani out on the DL with a mildly sprained left ankle. So, Arcia is going to be up for the next two weeks, and he's going to get a chance to hit. Uh, he can hit for power and average. The stats suggest a little swing and miss in him, but he's really not a hacker. His walk rate has grown to 9% over recent seasons, and he has a career 316 batting average in the minors with a 500-plus slugging percentage. So it looks like he barrels up pretty well. Yeah, he's the number three prospect, according to Baseball HQ's organizational reports. Coming into the year, he was behind uh, Byron Buxton, who's an outfielder, and Miguel Sano, formerly Miguel Jean, a third baseman. And uh, his upside rating is a 9D, which means uh, an all-star level player with a not-so-great chance of making it to that level, but the sort of implies a decent outfielder, a decent offensive outfielder. Oswaldo Arcia started a game. It's not like they just brought him up to sit on the end of the bench and hand out the sunflower seeds. He played left field on Monday. He went one for three. But you mentioned uh, he's had some history of hacking. Get this, three at-bats, six pitches. 
Yeah, I noticed that too. Um, he looked comfortable in those at bats, though. I they were against the Angels, and I was watching them on television. He went one for three. The other two at bats were long fly balls or line drives to the outfield. Um, if he can if he can acquit himself well over these next two weeks, he could make it tough on the Twins. Well, heaven knows they could use some offense. That's for sure. Jock, thanks very much for helping us out again this week. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Okay, PD. Thanks a lot. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and writes a multitude of columns for the site as well. Our feature interview with Lore Michaels of MastersBall.com is next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. There's a long drive way back in Centerfield, way back, back. It is second Dolby is able to go to third. Willie Mays just brought this crowd to its feet with a catch. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. Pleasure now to be joined by Lore Michaels from MastersBall.com. Guy who's been around the fantasy baseball world for a long, long time, knows a ton of stuff about it. Hey, Lore, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks a lot, Patrick. It's uh it's it, it's a fun to be with you, and b uh, the older I get, the scarier a long, long time sounds. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's more back than front. Uh, Laura, before we get started talking about this year, how many leagues and how many formats uh, do you usually play, and how many are you playing in in this season? I think I'm in six leagues right now. I'm in the XFL, which is a mixed format auction, and then I'm doing a um, an NFBC. Draft Champions League, which is pretty fun. That's one where you basically it's an online draft, uh, draft and follow. You pick up fifty players, and and that's who you have for the entire year. Uh, and then I have my my National League uh, Labor team and my American League Tout Wars team. And there's also an FSTA, the Fantasy Sports Trade Association team. And I partner on that one with my my good buddy uh, Todd Lord Zola, although. Uh, we we drafted together, but he I let I let him I, I yield the day to day operations to him. He's Billy Bean, and, and I get to sit in the background and pretend I'm not paying attention. And then I'm I'm also in a uh, a Stratomatic league that's actually my favorite league. That's uh, run by my my buddy Dean Peterson from Stats and another guy we know in the Chicago area, uh, Al Coleman. That's a 30 team league. And it's just fantastic. It's it's a keeper league. You can freeze twenty eight up to twenty eight guys a season, so you could really, really do ultra. You know, a dynasty league. Uh, you could really do a, save a core since it's stratomatic. It's based on the previous season, and we each play. We each have a home ballpark, so it, we we basically play the major league schedule. It's just my my team, for example, are the Berkeley Liberators and. And AT&T is our home stadium, so they just, when they schedule, they, trans, they transfer out the Giants and put the Liberators in. So I basically play the Giants schedule, and it's, it's really, a, there's pretty strict usage rules, too. So you have to have Paul Bacco as a backup to Jonathan LaCroix. If you overuse a player, you, you get penalized, which is not good. So it's, it's, you know, you need to have a fifth starter who in my case is Eric Bedard, which I wish I had a better fifth starter, but it's, it's very deep, and, and I really love that league. And then I'm also in a, a score sheet league with 
about 22 teams. Uh, Jeff Jeff Erickson is in that league also, and it's pretty fun too. So, but but all my teams are faring pretty well so far. Well, except the XFL, but I'm rebuilding. How do you keep track of them all, Laura? Some people wonder, you know, have trouble with a team or two teams. I guess you're in the business, so you have a certain advantage that you're not dividing your time between, you know, changing spark plugs at the local gas station and this. But it sure seems like a lot of work. This is about the maximum number of time of teams I could I could possibly manage. I've had more before, and the truth is, it stops being fun partially. Because you're you're so it's sort of divide and conquer, and partially because after a while every pitcher is throwing you you have every pitcher and they're throwing against your hitter and it kind of defeats the purpose. So that that just isn't much fun. And I also kind of liken it to football, where if you, the bet you know if you have an okay offense and an okay defense, you're going to be terrible at both. And um, but the, the talent and the labor teams are pretty easy to stay on top of. The XFL, I'm still rebuilding, and those are only once a week moves, so that's not too bad. The fantasy, the, the NFBC thing, again, there's no fab moves, so I don't have to worry about trades or anything other than setting my roster once a week. Uh, and the other two teams, the score sheet and the Stratomatic, they just involve a little bit of work either once a week to set a roster or during a short period of time to play games and so forth. So it's not really that much. And, and again, I, I wouldn't want to do any more than this. Then it just kind of becomes silly, and I'd I, 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 I lose interest because, like I said, my guys would be facing my guys, and, and I would be in a constant state of, of schizophrenic. Yahoo, he hit a homer. Uh-oh, he just gave up a homer. I have exactly that experience. I only have two leagues. Uh, the uh, Tell Wars mixed, and then I play in a, in a home league that's American League only. And already this year, I've had four or five times when Yahoo, Brandon Phillips hit a home run. Oh no, it was off, you know, it was off one of my pitchers. So it sucks. It, it's odd, and, and I don't think Xanax helped. I, I don't know. I, I'm willing to try anything to stop these guys hitting home runs. Maybe we should give the Xanax to them rather than to me. Uh, Laura, so far this year, who, what do you think have been the biggest surprises you've seen? Biggest surprises, actually, the, the big, the big surprise. As, uh, or at least, well, performance-wise, I think what is that, uh, um, God, who is it um, uh, that, that's, that's got seven homers? That's extra Fowler on, on, on Colorado. It's got seven homers. Uh, um, but that, uh, now I'm drawing a blank, but that, that, that kind of surprised me. I'm, I'm happy with Mike Morris, although I, I, I kind of thought, he would hit well, and, and I know he hurt his pinky, but being healthy was the big thing. And, and also, I was really happily surprised that Miami uh, gave Jose Fernandez a chance to just pitch and take his lumps at the big league level. I, I don't think they've got anything to lose, and I'm sort of hoping that they follow suit with Christian Yelich shortly and just kind of go the way that the Astros are going and just say, let's just throw these guys out there and see what they can do. We've got nothing to lose. Um, let's just see what they can do. I, I, I kind of like that a lot. Um, I, kind of, I, 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 like, I like seeing teams rebuild, too. Um, I'm also really happy with the resurgence of John Lester. I, 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 I have him in the XFL, and I, was, I, 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 I like him. He's a, he's a good pitcher, so I'm glad to see him doing well. Just like I'm kind of disconcerted that Tim Linscombe seems to still have the same disease he has last, had last year, which is I can pitch really well for five out of six innings, but 
in one inning, I'm going to have a meltdown, and we never know which inning that's going to be. Yeah, it'd be a lot handier if he'd just do it in the fifth every time, then you'd know when to get him out of the game. Uh, are you at all surprised, you live there in the Bay Area, are you at all surprised that Oakland has been such an offensive juggernaut, given the fact that outside of Ioannis Cespedes, there's really not a lot of top-line, apparent top-line batting talent on that club? Not at all. In fact, uh, Tout Weekend, I was uh, with on... on uh, on, on CBS uh, uh, web video, uh, do on a panel that uh, Nando uh, Defino ran, and they asked me uh, about middle infield and playing time in Oakland. And one of the things I said, I, and I thought I thought Scott Sizemore would be the second baseman, and I said Jed Lowry will be the shortstop. Um, and obviously Sizemore got hurt, so that's still a little bit of a question. But I said if if Sizemore plays, and I think Chris Young's going to get 400 at bats. If you basically look at the three outfield positions, put Young at DH, and then look at the infield, every one of those guys is capable of hitting 15 homers. And I think Oakland's going to play Earl Weaver baseball and, you know, a walk, a single, and a home run. And I think they're, uh, if their pitching is, is half as good as it, as it was last year, watch out. They're, that, that, that could be a very good team. So I'm not surprised at all. I, I, I think that it's, if you look at it carefully, too, you know, Donaldson, Donaldson, Lowry, um, Moss, all those guys have hit 15 homers before. Chris Paz, Cespedes did, Reddick did, Chris Young can. So, and, and, and actually, Derek Norris has the capability. I don't think Jaso could, but, but David have a pretty nice catcher platoon, lefty-righty catcher platoon there. So I'm, I'm not surprised in the least. In fact, they're kind of fun to watch. Laura, when a player does get off to an unusually hot or cold start, but especially a hot start, how do you know if you're looking at the beginnings of a trend or if this is just some kind of outlier or oddity? I really look hard at, at trends that the player has, not just in the major leagues, but in the minor leagues. And the example I'd use is Brian LaHare, who never, he, he just never looked like he would succeed like he did the first six weeks of last season. And... I just figured at some point he's going to have a regression, and he, and he did. And I think, and, and there's obviously, you know, exceptions to that, situa- to, to that situation. Ryan Fogelsong is a real good example where there's nothing in his history that told us that all of a sudden one day he would develop control and, um, and enough dominance to pitch as well as he has the last couple of years. So obviously nothing is foolproof, but for the most part, I think you could really look at and. The things I look at most, for it doesn't matter whether it's a hitter or a pitcher, are uh, at-bats or innings, and then strikeouts and walks relative to that. If you're a pitcher, and in general you can keep your walks down and your strikeouts up, or your base runners uh, to innings pitched even, you're probably going to be successful. And, and the reason is the less runners get on base, the less the percentages that something will happen. Conversely, if you're a hitter and you can get on base, um, and, and that's usually a pretty solid trend through the minors. If you could get on base, the percentages are greater that something will happen, that, you'll, that you could get a hit, that you could score a run. Even if it's a walk, you could still score a run or steal a base by virtue of getting on base. So I, I try to really, as much as I can, look at, adhere to what it looks like the guy's done over the arc of his career, whatever the stat size. And, and I think you have to, for younger players or newer players to, the majors, you have to kind of toss out the, the the smaller sample or the one year, and really look 
look at what they did in the minors or what they did in college and see if, if this is consistent with their, with their skill set in the past. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Lore Michaels from MastersBall.com. Lore, you mentioned patience. We're always telling uh, fantasy owners, fantasy players, they have to be patient at this time of year before making any significant roster moves. But that always raises the question back, how long do you wait before you start to make roster changes, especially when you've got guys on your roster who are killing your ratios? I, I, I think of a couple things. One, one is if you've got guys that are killing your ratios, you're probably not going to be able to trade them. Um, so you probably have to let go of that one. And, and in that instance, it also depends a lot on the, on the depth of the, or shallowness of your respective league. If you've got Chris Tillman and you're worried about him, which I've got him on a couple of teams, and I'm certainly, I don't know about worried, concerned might be the euphemism I would use. You know, I would look and see, is there anybody out there that I can replace him with? Um, but I, I, generally I try to wait at least till Memorial Day. And one of the things I also try to caution or remind people, it's sort of a two-pronged thing. One, especially if it's a, well, an auction, but, but also in a draft, if you, if you gave a higher position to, a, you know, if you drafted Roy Halladay in the seventh or eighth round, that's, that's, that's giving some respect to his skill set. If you paid $10, $12 for the same guy, then you paid for him to produce a certain way, and you sort of owe it to him to have a chance to try to produce as you predicted. Um, I mean, it's foolish, I think, to think he'll end up the season with an ERA of six and a half. Um, so what that, so the, the, the second part of that is that if his ERA winds up at four, which might be higher than you anticipated, it's still better than seven and a half. That means he's got X number of innings of good performance in him to bring those numbers down. If you jettison him now, then basically what you're saying is, well, I don't care that he might pitch with a sub-3 ERA for his next four starts to bring those numbers down. So you're sort of shooting yourself in the foot by your own impatience. And, and you know, it's true he might just be awful. It's true that, that you know, uh, that, that Mark Burley might, might just have, have run into the wall However, statistically, it doesn't seem like it. And based on the teams they're on, they should rally and based on their histories. So I just think you have to try to give them as much opportunity as you can. And sometimes that, that means you just have to live with them for the season and, and chalk it up as, you know, I just didn't pick them right this year. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But, but I'm, I'm pretty much pretty conservative when it comes to dumping guys like that sometimes to the, my own detriment, but, but usually it works out right. What about, what about guys who aren't Roy Halladay, though? What about a guy who's a, a first- or second-year player that you had high hopes for and he's just not delivering? And in either case, Lore, how, many, how long is the rope? You know, I mean, if, if Roy Halladay goes out and tosses another four straight games of five or five and a third innings, four earned runs, and, and nine or ten base runners, I mean... It's all well and good to say just hang on to him till the end, but at some point you have to say, you know what, something's gone wrong here. Well, I actually mentioned Chris Tillman who and, and Mark Burley, both of whom I have on my uh, on my AL Tout team, and, and in the National League, the guy I've got in a couple of teams is, is is Lincecum, and I'm looking carefully at them, but I would try not to dump them. Um, I would, would really what I'm looking at for both of them is. Uh, is is replacing him with a relief pitcher. Uh, you know, I'm looking at. I've got Aaron Crow 
in the in the in, in, in my Tatwars team. So and and Burley pitched better last time, but I you know I'm I'm just bad. I, I, I'm hesitant to really dump them and throw them back in the player pool. Not just because they could turn it around, but additionally, if you drop them, then the chances are somebody else will pick them up when they are running running good. And you know it's 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 sort of like. Bobby Bonilla is still getting, you know, being the second highest paid outfielder on the Mets outfield. It's even though he's not playing anymore. It's it's or 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 Vernon Wells playing in New York, you know, being paid seventeen million dollars by the Angels to play against them. You don't want to hand over a potential numbers to another owner. So I'm I'm pretty big on trying to at least hide them on your reserve list and pick up somebody benign, a, a relief pitcher that can at least pick up the slack that probably won't hurt you very much and that might get an occasional win and some strikeouts for you until the until the main guy gets back on his on his feet I guess yeah and you mentioned uh, uh, also the importance of understanding you know, the depth of your league if you're in a very deep league with very limited resources in the free agent pool that's got to color your decision making versus somebody who's in a 10 team mixed and if you want to drop Roy Halladay you got plenty of choices in the pool including you know you may still even have your Clay Buchholzes and and guys like that because they didn't get drafted and, uh, you know, they're doing well now. So uh, league depth obviously has to have a, a lot to do with the decision-making. Absolutely, absolutely. I have a, a friend locally, and he, he asked me if I, I thought he should, and, and his, he, he plays with his son in a 10-team league, and he asked me if he should pick up Astrobel Cabrera. And I went, well, <laughs> who dropped him and who would you give up? And he said, well, we, we had Ibar, but he went on the DL, so we dropped him. So, you know, it's it's not that... For those guys, it's it's kind of interchangeable parts, and you know it all depends on what you like to play. And I prefer not to be in a league like that, just because everybody has an all-star team, and then it's it's sort of a case of well, who picked the best all-stars? I I, I prefer something like an AL or NL only league that's pretty deep, where where you actually you actually have to have George Kateris whether you like it or not. <laughs> and and you know, I kind of liken it to poker too that. Uh, that uh, a shallower mixed league is kind of like playing AC Ducey or Anaconda with a lot of wild cards, right? And you know you could you could win with 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 a pair of of, of uh, you know you playing Dr Pepper you could win with with uh, two fours and a couple of twos and tens all of a sudden you got six fours. Well, I like playing AL only pretty strict rules, um, and I think of it more like five card stud where. You could win with a pair of deuces and a pair of sixes, uh, which isn't a very good hand, and it's hard to do, but you can do it. And I I just prefer that just because it's a little more challenging to me. And a little more interesting, one of the main attractions for a lot of players is in playing fantasy baseball is that you get to learn the rosters. You get to find out uh, who the uh, guys down at the tail end of the bench are because they might come in handy at some point during the year, whereas uh, it's not quite as challenging as you mentioned to uh, you know drop your eye bars and pick up your Azrubal Cabreras. That, that's simply an option that's not available to a more serious level of fantasy play. Not that there's anything wrong with either method. Uh, you play what you like and enjoy what you like. Uh, I know there are fans who want to play in those 10-team and 12-team mix because they 
don't want to learn about you know all of the guys down at the ends of the benches, and, and that's fine for them. Uh, it's Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. I'm with Laura Michaels from MastersBall.com. And, Laura, one of the most popular features at First Pitch Arizona in November is the Facts and Flukes panels, uh, Facts and Flukes panels for hitters and pitchers. And I was going to ask you about some players this year so far and ask you about their early performances and ask you to say whether they're facts or flukes. Let's start with Atlanta. They're having a great start, and one of the main reasons is catcher Evan Gaddis. He came in to take Brian McCann's place and hit four home runs uh, right out of the gate. Evan Gaddis, a fact or a fluke? Well, I'm, I don't think he's going to hit 75 home runs. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I, I wrote about him last week. He's got pretty good minor league numbers and pretty good pop, and I... I you know, I I think he he's a pretty could be a pretty solid player. I I I think he could hit fifteen to twenty homers for sure. Um, and he's playing on a team that's playing very well. And and it is true the the the, the Braves won ten straight, but uh, right before that, you know, the the Athletics won nine straight. So maybe it's just a streaky year. In fact, I was pretty impressed that the Royals Royals shut him out. That was that was a pretty good game. I got yes. Mike Miner in. in I think of my labor team, so I was a little disappointed, but not too bad. But back to Gaddis, yeah, I think I, I, I think he could be a factor. I, I think he could be pretty good. Yeah, the one thing uh, about Evan Gaddis that I think is really interesting is that his his background is solid, and the reason that he wasn't in the big leagues sooner was uh, a package of personal issues, which puts me in mind of a guy like Josh Hamilton, who sorts his personal life out, gets back on the rails, and that allows his baseball talent to shine through. On the flip side, of course, you've got Brian McCann waiting in the wings, and how does Atlanta manage the playing time and so forth, which might be a problem. Uh, Laura, a two-time Tout Wars champion, Larry Schechter, told me on Baseball HQ Radio to keep an eye on Franklin Gutierrez, and he's already matched his home run total from all of last year. Is Gutierrez a fact or a fluke? I, I, I think he's a fluke. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would like to think he could play better, but I, I, I just don't, I don't feel comfortable that he can keep it up. Again, based on based on past history, he's kind of a free swinger, and I I I'm just not real comfortable with him. Justin Masterson in Cleveland opened the year with three wins and three starts, had an 0.41 ERA and an 0.82 WHIP. Fact or fluke? Uh, I don't think he's going to pitch that well for the remainder of the season. And and Cleveland's kind of an interesting team. They got they got a lot of good hitters, and their whole I think. Their whole season this year rested largely on on Ubaldo Jimenez and Masterson, and the reality is I've loved Masterson ever since he was on Boston, and the other reality is I've been burned by him, I don't know, two out of three years the last three years. So I'm a little gun shy of him. I think he's going to have a rough air, rough time, um, but but I think he could go back to what was it two years ago? He had a he had a pretty solid season and. I think I think that's a reasonable expectation that that he's he's got good stuff and I think he can I I, I think he's going to be a pretty good pitcher. He was a thirteen dollar player in five by five two years ago using baseballhq.com's numbering and he was always a very high ground ball guy and still is but we saw a big jump early this year in his strikeout rate he's up over eight strikeouts per nine innings which is a pleasant addition to his skill set if it if it maintains it is and he's got a pretty good slider if memory serves and. If he can use that effectively, then then I think his strikeouts are indeed a fact that he's mastered it. And his slider, I think, was the thing that gave him trouble a lot because it would bite into the dirt and he'd walk a lot of guys and then give up hits at untimely. When he when he's off, that's what that's what his problem is. 
Back to Atlanta. How about Paul Mahalam? Three straight wins as well, giving up no runs and a 79 whip uh, through those first three games. How about a factor fluke on Paul Mahalam? Boy, what, how, what is it with Atlanta? You know, I don't know. I don't know how they how they resurrect or find these guys. I, I'm I'm afraid he's a fluke. Um, again, based on his previous resume, he could be he could be one of those Ryan Vogelsong guys that just all of a sudden one day gets it. And for some reason, every year Atlanta comes up with a guy like this, like like Chris Medlin last year, or or you know they 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 somebody always emerges. Jar Jurgens a few years back, they 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 seem to come up with these guys. So. If he has a good run this year, I wouldn't be surprised, but then it would be a fluke season. But I, I just see him getting pounded over the long run. You make an interesting point about the the organization. When an, when an Atlanta type of team or organization like the Rays also likes a pitcher and, and takes steps to acquire him or, or to develop him, well, you have to give them a little extra credit because there's teams that are good at doing this and there's teams that aren't. And uh, Paul Mahalam, I don't know that he's a fact or a fluke, but I like the fact that Atlanta's the team that's willing to bet on him and it's not, uh, you know, Pittsburgh or Kansas City. Yeah, and, and they are, and, and for sure, Atlanta is good at it. For they, they, the, the guy that, that continues to amaze me on their team is Tim Hudson, who yeah. just doesn't look, he's, you know, when, in fact, when people talk about, about Tim Lincecum being able to handle the stress uh, with his body type of, of, of pitching in the majors, I always, I always point to Tim Hudson, who's kind of the same build. He's very slight, and he's really only had arm problems once, and he's ridiculously consistent, and, and that's yeah. kind of a hitter's park. And the fact that he can pitch as well as he has for as long as he has, I think he's been on that team for like, what, six years or something like that, seven years by now, and he's still delivering the goods. It, it, they're, 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 obviously, they're doing something right with their pitching. In Tout Wars this year, I really tried to get Clay Buchholz. I had him uh, a few years ago, and I think he got messed around by some coaching issues in Boston, but he's off to a three wins and three starts uh, this year. Another guy with an 041 ERA and, and a whip under one. Clay Buchholz, fact or fluke lore? I think he's a fact. Um, I think you know, if you remember, I think didn't he didn't he toss a no hitter like one of his first starts? And yes. I think we all got caught up in the in, in in the hype. But he was very young. I mean, I still think he's he's probably not more than twenty four, twenty five years old, which isn't even peak years. But but the fact that he threw a no no back that early and that he had good strikeout numbers tells us that he's got talent. And I think he just has matured a little bit and grown into his skill set and, and, and realized, hey, I don't have to strike. I can strike guys out, but I don't have to strike anybody, everybody out. I can, you know, pitch my game. Put the, I can put the ball in play and my teammates will back me up. And I, I, I think he's just grown up, and I, I think he's a fact. It makes me wonder that. That's what makes me wonder about him, though. He came up as a fairly high strikeout guy, and then the, the Boston pitching approach tried to get him to scale back on the strikeouts to get deeper into games and it worked but his success wasn't as great and I wonder if he's maybe just now figuring out how to combine those two things and it certainly on the start in 2013 looks like he might have uh, down in Baltimore Chris Davis looked like Lou Gehrig there uh, six home runs he was batting 350 okay I'm going to give you a fluke on the batting average but how about the home runs I think he could hit 30 35 homers uh, he's, he's clearly got power and and he always had, um, you know, it's 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 sort of like, well, the other guy I think of in the same breath is Justin Smoke, 
who came up with just as much hype, has just as much power, and Davis had just as much trouble making contact. But, uh, but I think you could kind of liken Davis to Buckholz again, where he was highly touted, well thought of, everybody thought he was going to be one of the next big things. And that's a lot of pressure to put on a young guy. And I think he bounced around a little bit. And, and I, I, you know, I hear players say all the time, and I repeat this a lot, that the thing, the one thing that, that helps their success more than anything is recognizing that they belong. And I think that that ostensibly is what happened to Buckholz and to Davis, that they realized, oh, I can play this game at this level. I'm as good as 90% of the players that are playing in the majors, that other 10% being, you know, Albert Pujols and, 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 and Matt Kemp and Miggy Cabrera and guys that, that really are in a, kind of in a, in a class by themselves. But, but for the most part, I think, when players know that they can that, that they belong, I think that takes a they don't have to prove anything other than to play their game, and I think that takes a lot of the pressure off and and just makes it kind of a day to day. I'm going to go out there and play my best game today, and I don't care what anybody else says or thinks. And if I have a tough day today, there's going to be tomorrow, and I'll just keep going out there. I think that makes such a huge difference in the mindset of most players that that they get comfortable with it, just like just like any of the rest of us when we have a new job, especially if we're younger or been promoted or something like that, they always have a, a probationary period in a job because nobody ever expects you to be able to do everything right the first day or week. And I think baseball is no different. And I think once we realize that we can belong and we, we, can, we can master whatever job or skills uh, or, or, that we're, or, or duties that we're given, then we feel like we belong and we can do a job competently. Same thing, I think, with, with the Davises and the Buchholzes. And the Justin Uptons, I wonder, this guy's the hottest start in, in all of baseball. Nine homers so far. He's around 330, I think, for a batting average. Of course, we've been waiting for this comeback slash breakout ever since his first big year. And is this the big year? Is this the big breakout? Well, it's certainly the start of it. He's very good. He's very talented. And uh, I think I think playing with his brother is a big deal. I, I think that's in, in fact, that's arguably the best outfield in the major leagues, um, and they're really young too. Still, um, I, I think I think he's going to have a very good year. He's he's a fact. But, you know, the question is whether he hits 35 homers or 42 homers, and, and and the reality is it doesn't matter. You know, if he hits either of them, that's still pretty good. Um, but he's a fact. He's he's a real player. He's really a talented guy. And so far, of course, we've only talked about guys who are exceeding expectations or, or perhaps meeting them and exceeding them in some instances. But what about the guys who are starting slowly? Uh, we talked about Cameron Mabin earlier in the broadcast with uh, Harold Nichols in our National League watch. Uh, there's also Mike Moustakis in Kansas City, Jesus Montero in Seattle. Ichiro's off to a very slow start. Would you gamble on any slow-starting hitters like this? I'd love to gamble on Ichiro. And, and actually, out of those four guys, he's the one I'd probably gamble on the most. He started slow last year and then picked it up. And, um, you know, he is, if ever there was a professional hitter, it's him. But it still makes me nervous. Um, uh, Mabin is, is kind of a strikeout guy. I, I, I worry about that and, and think he was overhyped. Moustakis, Moustakis, I hate to say it, has a lot of Brandon Wood in him. He had a great minor league year, what, three or four years ago. But any he, 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 he had moments last year, but... But I think his weaknesses were uncovered, and I'm just not convinced now that he's 
as good as we thought or hoped he would be. I can't remember who was the fourth guy. Um, Jesus Montero in Seattle's got oh, Mike Montero. I, I think he's going to keep playing, but I, I actually I see I see Seattle. Um, I think they're going to have to bring up Mike Zanino. He's he's hitting really well. He's ready, and and I see Montero moving into a DH role. If that happens, I think he could settle down. He's a pretty good gamble. Um, it's funny how that trade that trade worked out because really, you know, uh, it was what was it Pineda for Montero and. Both of the guys were such highly, so highly touted, and everybody thought, "Well, here's a brilliant trade of a, a great prospect for a great prospect," and, and we haven't really seen a whole lot from either of them. So it's kind of it's kind of Milt Pappas for Frank Robinson in reverse. Yeah, that's right. No clear winner when they. Well, it's disappointing for both sides. I imagine be the the primary response. I think, uh, Laura, how surprised are you about the success of some of the closers that were pretty much written off by a lot of the experts in the off season? And I'm thinking of two guys in particular. Everybody said, "Don't draft Jim Johnson. He doesn't strike out enough guys. He's six saves, no blown saves, a zero ERA, and a zero eighty six WHIP." Brandon League in Los Angeles. Don't draft this guy. He's no good, and he's got too many guys breathing down his neck he's four for four and shows no signs of losing this job either uh, does any of this surprise you no um but and and it wouldn't surprise me either if they had a meltdown and got replaced but, you know closer job is is so ephemeral or effectiveness especially for closers it's such a mindset thing um, and and actually i thought you were going to mention casey jansen who similarly is 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 has pitched pretty well so far but it no it doesn't surprise me I, it it, you know, baseball's such a funny game, and it's so streaky, you know, and, and just just by by virtue of, of us talking about whether guys are facts or flukes or not, that just kind of reiterates that it, it's such a streaky game, and, and, and it's, it's so hard to master for six, to, to, to be on top of it for six months. It's, it's a really hard game, and, but, but that's why, you know, kind of I was saying earlier, you've got to be patient. You've got to look on the body of work that the guy produced even in the minor leagues before you before you do anything rash or throw you know throw the baby out with the bathwater are you looking at stockpiling uh, any closers in waiting expecting uh, job sh- job changes in the near future uh, i i don't know if i'm waiting or expecting but and and he has actually in the national league he hasn't got out to as hot a start as i hope but i'm 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 a big trevor rosenthal fan in the American League, uh, I'm a big Sean Doolittle fan, um, and and I don't know how many people out there. We have a pretty sophisticated baseball. SK has a pretty sophisticated uh, following, but uh, you know, two years ago, Sean Doolittle was a first baseman just learning how to pitch. So the fact that two years later he's not only pitching at the major league level, but he's adding to his repertoire. Plus, he throws 97, 98 miles an hour. He throws very hard and has very good command. That I I think if if Grant Balfour has any trouble, Doolittle takes over. That's that. Um, and in, in St. Louis, it's just kind of up in the air whether it's Boggs. Um, obviously, Jason Mott's down. And I think if Rosenthal just settles down, he also throws very hard and has a pretty good – I think he could be a very good closer. So I, I like both of those guys. And there's all, also always the, the other two guys I, I, I just like having in my back pocket because one of these days they are going to close both – Vinny Pastano and uh, also um, uh, Luke Gregerson. I think their closer's waiting to happen somewhere, somehow. Not Joe Smith in Cleveland? 
I, I like Pistano much better. Okay, and what about uh, Ryan Cook in Oakland as opposed to Doolittle? I, I, I Doolittle is more dominant. I, I, you know, Cook, Cook had the job and, and, and couldn't hold it, and I don't know if he was advanced too early, but I, I, if you see Doolittle pitch, that guy has come so fast, so far so fast, as not a pitcher, that uh, I, he has more dominant stuff to me than, than Cook does, even yeah. though he's a lefty. And what about uh, Edward Mujica in St. Louis, who's the incumbent we talked about earlier in the show with Harold? He, he's he's interesting. He's got, you know, I, I mean, you got to pay props to the guy who's got the job at the moment. But uh, but I just I, over the long haul, I like Rosenthal's stuff. He just he he I just he he just looks like and acts like I'm in charge here, and, and he always has to me. And part of you know, it's sort of like whether I belong here or not. That just and you know, tells somehow that tells me, or or, or sends me some kind of a signal that, that 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 guy was made for a certain job or made to play under certain circumstances. And I just I just trust that instinct. I've learned to trust my instincts, um, even though they don't always work out. They they, for some bizarre reason, they're 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 generally better than not. And in fact, I think we all tend to subvert ourselves by trying to be logical over trusting our instincts um, as, as human beings. It's Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Lore Michaels from MastersBall.com. And Lore, before we uh, go, let's wrap up by asking you, where can listeners uh, read more, find out more from Lore Michaels? Uh, well, we can always find me uh, with my partner Todd Zola at MastersBall.com, www.MastersBall.com. I, uh, I do a Monday column on the, called the Hot Page that I've done for a uh, almost 20 years now, where I look at 8 to 10 players that caught my eye during the previous week. Uh, I do a bed goes up, bed goes down column every Saturday where I get to thread about whatever I feel like. Uh, also, uh, you can find me at both the USA Today on Wednesdays writing about the minor leagues and at KFFL on uh, Tuesdays just writing about baseball and strategy in general. Um, so those are, but, but Masters Ball is the is the real bread and butter. That's, that's, that's where you can always get hold of me through Masters Ball and, and see me on, on a regular basis. Twitter or Facebook? Uh, not Facebook, but uh, you can catch me at Twitter at, at Laura Michaels. And Laura Michaels, L-A-W-R Michaels. Uh, Laura, you're also a musician. What are you doing in that regard? Any projects or gigs going on? Uh, working on a second album. Uh, my first album, Downward Facing Dog, is out there at Amazon. Gets great reviews, but nobody ever buys it. Um, but uh, I'm working on a second album called uh, that will be tentatively titled Austin Creek. Got a lot of songs, so we're working on demos now. And my band, The Biotones, that I also play bass in, that's a, a whole different project. We've got, if you're in the East Bay, a bunch of gigs set up. We're playing uh, a great little dive bar in the East Bay called Rooster's Roadhouse uh, in early June. And we're playing in, uh, in, in July in Berkeley somewhere. I can't remember my... Uh, our, our fearless leader, Bill Alberti, could tell you that. But, uh, but yeah, we have gigs lined up, so and I'll probably do a couple of solo acoustic gigs over the summer. So it looks like it'll be a fun summer. Maybe what you need to do is one of those videos with a bunch of girls wearing bikinis and you cavort around on a big yacht. Yeah, that, that, that would be great. I, <laughs> do you know anybody who has a yacht? I, I actually don't. <laughs> I don't think many people do, but everybody wants to, apparently. Yeah, really. Yeah, and everybody, well, not everybody, but many people like cavorting with bikini-dressed babes, too. 
Yeah, I guess, I guess that never hurts. And uh, on your own, what are you listening to these days? Uh, you have great taste in music. I've spoken with you before at Tout Wars and stuff. Uh, any Anything to recommend? Um, well, I've actually been kind of into the Lumineers, if you know the Lumineers. Sure. Uh, they had a the big hit called Ho Hey that's actually on about 8 million TV commercials these days. It's on a Samuel Adams commercial. But I kind of like them. That's sort of rootsy. Uh, I've been listening to Nick Drake, who is a great British folk artist that unfortunately passed away in the 70s. I've been listening to his album, Pink Moon, that, that I really, really, really like a lot. I've been listening to Richard Thompson's new album, Electric. Uh, Mr. Thompson's one of my, it's my, my favorite songwriter, my favorite guitar player, my favorite live performer. So anything he does is good. And I'm also a, a big Yola Tango fan. I listen to a lot of them, and I'm, I'm actually going to see them next month early May at, uh, at the Fillmore, so I'm excited about that. Just hearing that you get to go to the Fillmore and see this show makes me jealous. Lawyer, thanks very much for talking with us. I really appreciate it, and I hope we get to catch up with you again during the season. My pleasure, and always happy to join you, Patrick. That's Lore Michaels of MastersBall.com. You heard him say he's listening to Richard Thompson and Nick Drake these days, which is always a heck of an idea. So here is Richard Thompson playing a lovely electric guitar behind Nick Drake on Time Has Told Me on Baseball HQ Radio. Time has told me You're fine Trouble For a troubled mind Time has told me Not to ask for more For someday our ocean So I leave the ways of making me be What I really don't want to be Leave the ways that are making me love What I really don't want to love
the ways that are making you be what you really don't want to be. Leave the ways that are making you love what you really don't want to love. Nick Drake's 1969 debut album Five Leaves Left that is Nick Drake with Richard Thompson on electric guitar and time has told me the piano by the way was by Paul Harris who will be familiar to anyone and remembers the Stephen Stills Richie Furey, Poco, Manassas Birds, Flying Burrito Brothers sound from the late 60s and early 70s our regular commentaries are next this is Baseball HQ Radio 1-1 pitch he popped him up he's gonna get it Rochus down from third Rochus makes the catch ball game over a perfect game a perfect game for david cone the third time works like a charm it is the third perfect game in yankee stadium history baseball hq radio and welcome back to baseball hq radio i'm patrick davitt time now for our regular weekly commentaries we have BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler in the hole with Master Notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about Twins third base prospect Miguel Sano. The Minnesota Twins' Miguel Sano might be the best power hitter still in the minors and has gotten off to a fantastic start in 2013. The 19-year-old third baseman is 21 for 54 with four doubles, five home runs, and 15 RBIs in his first 13 games at High A Fort Myers. Sano does swing and miss a lot, and so might not hit for high average once he reaches the majors, but last year he smacked 28 doubles and 28 home runs as an 18-year-old in the pitcher-friendly Midwest League. At 6'3", 200 pounds, Sano moves surprisingly well at third base and has a strong, accurate arm, but will need to work hard to stick at third as he advances. While Sano does strike out a lot, he has a surprisingly good understanding of the strike zone and can hit quality breaking balls. Sano has consistently been one of the youngest players at every level and does a good job of making the necessary adjustments. Long term, Miguel Sano is more than just a masher and has the potential to hit 40 home runs a year in the majors. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob and Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, and Chris Maloney have reports and updates on the top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on the rising stars. Baseball HQ's call-up reports this week have looked at Minnesota outfielders Aaron Hicks and Oswaldo Arcia, Cincinnati pitcher Tony Singrani, Cleveland starter Trevor Bauer, and Miami starter Jose Fernandez. 
Rob also has a report looking at the likely Rookie of the Year candidates for 2013. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about how would we value Jackie Robinson if fantasy baseball had existed in 1947. Has everyone seen 42 yet? Well, this is not a review of the new movie about Jackie Robinson. For one thing, I'm not a movie reviewer. For another thing, I don't watch movies the way many other people watch movies. To wit, here was my takeaway from 42. Number one. I liked it. Number two, I blame a good measure of the Hollywoodization of the film on Mark Esham, who composed, and I assume arranged, the overblown score. Number three, I particularly liked seeing some of my favorite TV character actors in key roles, like Chris Maloney of Law & Order, John C. McGinley from Scrubs, and Max Gale from Barney Miller. Number four, I miss Han Solo. As a fantasy leaguer, actually, there's a more intriguing takeaway from this film. If fantasy baseball existed in 1947, what would have been Jackie Robinson's projected draft value? question really is, how do you price an unknown commodity? This is a question we've had to ask quite often over the past two decades. We first had to ask it about Hideo Nomo when he first came over from Japan in 1995. Since then, more than four dozen Japanese players have seen time in the majors. While we've had access to an abundance of performance data for these players, projecting them hasn't gotten any easier. For every successful Hideki Matsui, there were far more unsuccessful Kaz Matsuis. Major leaguers who defected from Cuba are even more troublesome. There have been about 40 of these players since the early 1990s, and we've had virtually no performance data to go on. Calculating a projection for Ioannis Cespedes last year was no easier than projecting Rene Arrocha back in 1991. So imagine the challenge we would have had with Jackie Robinson in 1947. Similar to Cuba, performance data for the Negro Leagues was scarce. But beyond the statistics, there was one other variable that has proven to be at least as important in projecting performance of unknown foreign players. There was the psychological aspect of moving to a new country, learning the culture, adjusting to life in the major leagues. Some players took a season or two to get adjusted. Others hit the ground running. With the intense pressure placed on Robinson, odds are we would have projected some type of adjustment period. And we would have been wrong. Robinson batted 297 with 12 homers, 29 stolen bases, and 125 runs scored in his rookie year. Wasn't the same for other Negro League players, though. Roy Campanella and Monty Irvin took a year to gain their footing in the majors. But this psychological adjustment period shouldn't be dismissed, especially in light of another piece of news that coincidentally hit on the same day that 42 was released. Major League Baseball's collective bargaining agreement bans discrimination based on sexual orientation. So do the other major sports. But the National Hockey League has gone one step further, announcing a formal partnership with an LGBT advocacy group. Some folks in the NHL say that their sport is ready if any of their players decide to come out as gay. Could baseball be far behind? Tough to say. While our country is moving in the direction of acceptance, men's pro sports has an aura built on testosterone-driven machismo. Well, perception is 90% of reality, right? But about 10% of the population is gay, 
So that means there could be upwards of 75 gay ball players on active rosters right now. If any of them were to come out, would that change our expectations for their performance? It's not hard to imagine that they could be harassed as much as Robinson was, and we just don't know what the psychological impact could be on their numbers. One might conclude that the decision to come out, in and of itself, could represent a level of courage that trumps any psychological effect. But as is noted in the movie, it all comes down to success on the field. It shouldn't matter the color of a person's skin or their sexual orientation or any other irrelevant variable. The only thing that matters, can they hit a curveball? For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column appears every Friday at BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about the Five-Year Futures League, Part 1. This is a really interesting experiment. Ron also has a weekly chat every Wednesday morning at 11 Eastern at USAToday.com, and he discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Ron's Master Notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also has his Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of April the 19th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 14 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest today, starting with Lore Michaels of MastersBall.com. Lore really knows his fantasy baseball and his music. I also want to thank our regular guests from BaseballHQ.com, our League Watch News analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon, and our Master Notes commentator was BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com now and in the coming days for these features. In keeping with the theme of today's show, Ray Murphy's Speculator column looks at the best and worst of early hitting performances. Matt Cedarholm's Market Pulse column looks at exercising excruciating impatience. And David Martin's head-to-head column looks at avoiding PQS disasters. Plus, we'll have all our regular features on playing time, buyer's guides, divisional outlooks, pitcher matchups, and more. I'm Patrick Davitt. I have a study of pitcher handedness on the site now, and I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember to check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. My own Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Please feel free to join me there. And please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and rate our show. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another fantasy baseball expert who has a flair for tunes. It's the baseball wise guy, Gene McCaffrey, on another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.